Hyperplay. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning and welcome to this July 4th, 2012 edition of Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Happy 4th of July. We're broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast. I'm your host, Marie Stone. This is Writers on Writing. We are dedicated to the art and business of books. Each and every week, Barbara and I are here with authors, poets, agents, giving you the latest and most up-to-date information on the publishing world. In celebration of the 4th of July safety and security of our great nation. I'm joined now by Ken Ballin, author of Terrorists in Love. And coming up in the second half hour, Tim Harford will be here talking about ADAPT, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. Ken Ballin is the president and founder of Terror Free Tomorrow, a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization that investigates the causes of extremism. He spent nearly two decades on the front lines of law enforcement, international relations, intelligence oversight, and congressional investigations. Terrorists in Love, True Life Stories of Islamic Radicals is the book. It's published by Free Press, and it's the subject of our chat this morning. Ken, welcome. Thank you for, so much for having me on, Marie. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. I apologize for getting any emergency alert in the background here that I'll check in a moment. But, um, okay, great. Thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. I know the, the D.C. heat wave, and I know you were suffering from the power outages and, uh, and the rest well, of it. Well, we got the power back just in time to talk to you, so there you have it. Isn't that perfect? Perfect. <laughs> so, so let's start out with your decision to write the book. You were a federal prosecutor. You were busy, obviously, with Terror Free Tomorrow. Tell me about um, what compelled you to tell these stories, what compelled you to sort of stop other things and, and take time out to write the book. Well, the, the book, I say this, and I don't know whether you've heard this from other authors, but the book really wrote itself. Um, I was out in the field uh, for some five years doing research and for our organization, Terror Free Tomorrow, and the focus of the research was public opinion research, uh, public opinion surveys and polls, that kind of thing. And over the course of that, I interviewed some 200 uh, radicals, uh, trying to understand, uh, to come up with better survey instruments, essentially. Um, and about 100 of those, about half or so, I interviewed in, 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 at great length and in depth, and of those hundred, six individual stories were so compelling, changed everything I thought I knew as a so-called expert about this topic, that I just felt I had to share their stories from their point of view. Um, and that's what led to the book. So I assume the, the six of these people were aberrations that you hadn't seen before and sort of exceptions to the rule, or did you sort of see undercurrents of patterns that maybe these stories were indicative of of an, you know maybe some other trend out there that that we aren't aware of well definitely the latter these stories their stories were so compelling not because they were exceptional but because they really represented what i was finding um, with other people 
Now, you can't obviously tell the story of what causes everyone to become a radical or a terrorist because one of the lessons learned if you read these stories is that um, people operate, and this makes a lot of sense, but we've lost sight of this over the last decade, from a variety of mixed motives. Every human being is complex, and that includes people who are turned towards extremism as well. Their, their lives are complex, and they don't operate from one motive. So if they say, well, I'm fighting the United States because it's invaded our land, if you dig deeper down, that may be a reason that motivates them, or I'm fighting for God, that may be a reason that motivates them. But usually, if you strip away their professed reasons, there's an awful lot of other complex psychological, uh, cultural, uh, religious, social, et cetera, et cetera, uh, motivations that form their actions. Right, right. If you went back to being a federal prosecutor now, would you would you approach the job differently in light of what you learned during this process? Well, it's funny because it's actually the reverse. Hmm. As a federal prosecutor, the model that I used and that most prosecutors use, uh, especially federal prosecutors, where they we do in depth prosecutions. For example, I prosecuted the the mafia, the organized crime. I spent years investigating them on a wiretap, and then after we uh, made the initial round of some 50 people uh, arrest, um, half of those people ended up cooperating. So I didn't spend days or weeks interviewing those people. I spent months learning everything I possibly could about their entire background, not only to arrest other people, which is what we did as a result of their testimony, but when you put a, de uh, a cooperating defendant or witness on the stand, you better know everything about them or the other side is going to cross-examine them in a way that's going to hurt you because their colleagues know everything about them. So um, that's the model you use. That is not the model the United States adopted after we announced the war on terror in 9-11. We reacted to the problem. We didn't interview the people who were involved in it. We didn't engage in in-depth interrogations. Um, and torturing people is not an in-depth interrogation, by the way. So we didn't do the kinds of things that I always did as a prosecutor uh, to successfully prosecute people, and that was kind of the model that I used in approaching these guys. Right. And, you know, as between terrorists and drug traffickers and organized crime individuals, uh, whatever host of other things you saw in your career as prosecutor and congressional investigator, are there similarities in psychology that draw people down these paths? I know it's a little antithetical to the, the message of the book in general, uh, which is what everybody has their own unique stories and reasons. But nonetheless, um, have you discerned patterns that are predictive of these extremist sort of behaviors? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I think one obvious general there's, there's actually there's not a lot of generalizations you can make but one obvious generalization is that most uh, uh, terrorists and most criminals are young men between the ages of uh, 15 or 16 and 30 um, that's 99 percent of them um, or 90 percent of them so um, that's the target age group um, so there's something about those uh, kind of young uh, male hormones or whatever is going on that propels these people into action. Uh, you know, there is also a sense, you know, having prosecuted organized crime and criminal gangs, I mean, there's a sense of belonging to a community and being alienated that you also sometimes find in terrorist groups. But, you know, the, the differences, the, the similarities largely stop there because these people are religiously motivated. Many of them are, have a motivation, a desire to do good, um, which you don't find among criminals. They're not in, they're not in it to do good. <laughs> right. 
Actually, you know, it, that, that's kind of a good observation about these men being on the younger end of the spectrum and the intensity of the way you experience emotions when you're younger. You know, the intensity of the first time you fall in love and your Romeo and Juliet story in here pointed to that. Um, but, you know, just the, the intensity of of your emotional spectrum at that age is so off the charts compared to when you're 40 or 50 in general, you know? Well, it, 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 you know, I, I don't know all the sociological reasons that people in that age group are, are subject to this, but, but that is certainly the case among people who join this radical movement. And what this book exposes, and what's so interesting about that, is that that's also the path out. Because when they get in with this idealism and this passion, and they see that many of the leaders are corrupt, and they see that many of the leaders are duplicitous or otherwise conniving, they leave the movement. And this is something that we entirely missed in the West by characterizing people and characterizing them in this kind of black-and-white, cartoon-like fashion. And uh, it, it doesn't allow us... You know, if you don't talk to the people, you don't know what motivates them. And if you don't know what motivates them, you can't uh, adopt the right kind of actions and policies to uh, dissuade them from the activity. And that's the way we've operated, largely blind. Right, right. My guest this morning is Ken Ballin. The book is Terrorists in Love. And uh, you are tuned in to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So I guess we should back up just a little bit to expose listeners to, to some of the content of the book so they know uh, they know which page we're talking about. Um, that would be wonderful. That would be I good. Agree with you. <laughs> so let's back up and talk about sort of your introduction, your entree into these into these men how you came to know the bulk of them and sort of how the interview process went and how these, um, how these stories unfolded. Well, uh, I, there, 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 I, I met them. There's no one answer for that. Um, because of our on-the-ground work in these nations, uh, I had contacts, for instance, in Pakistan among members of the news media who were very close to the radicals. And this is a dangerous business, frankly. One of the people who helped me uh, set up these interviews uh, with this book uh, has ended up dead. Uh, so it it's, has its element of danger. And then in other countries, there was different ways that I got to them. But the important thing, and that's why I think it's important to talk about the subject matter, is that in this book, I try to tell the stories of these people's lives from their point of view, and in a very intimate fashion that goes back to their childhood and their, and their ancestors, to how they grew up, what, what formed their beliefs, what led them to jihad or holy war, and for many of them, what led them away, too. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's take one of, one of the stories, maybe, you know, one more of your choosing than mine, and sort of um, walk us through how, uh, how an individual got in and how he got out, sort of a short sure. arc of his story. Yeah, you're asking me, like, to choose from among my children what's I my know. favorite one. <laughs> I, you know, you're not supposed to do that, right? I know. Um, you know, well, I don't do that with my kids. So I, I, um, I'll start off with the um, uh, uh, one story, um, and then if we have time, we can certainly talk about others, and I'll try to be brief. But one is the story of a young man in Saudi Arabia by the name of Ahmad al-Shayeh. Uh, he grew up in kind of a typical middle-class home. He was um, very close to his mother, very close to his grandfather, but not so close to his father, or maybe a better way to put it, he had a lot of conflict with his father. Uh, so he um, uh, dropped out of school. He joined a gang. 
uh, did the kinds of things that one would do in a gang, um, a Saudi style. It's not exactly like our gangs here. It's much more benign. Uh, uh, he went to try to find work. He worked on and off but couldn't hold a job because the unemployment rate there among the youth is 50%. Uh, and eventually he felt at sixes and sevens, he started to go to the mosque. He started to hear how uh, his duty as a Muslim was to go to defend uh, his brother Muslims who were under attack in Iraq. He goes off with a cousin, joins al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, uh, interesting, when he arrives in Iraq with 25 other young men from all over the Arab world, the leader of al-Qaeda is exhorting these young men to suicide attacks and telling them that giving your life for God and the suicide attack is the uh, straight and narrow path directly to heaven. How many of you wish to go and volunteer for this? And as he later tells me, not a single person raised their hand. So he's kept in um, isolation for about four months, not trained on a weapon, not given any opportunity to fight, which is why he joined up to go to Iraq. Finally, he um, begs the al-Qaeda leaders for a mission, anything, because the boredom is overwhelming for these young men. And he's um, told that he's going to go on a mission. He's going to help drive a tanker, uh, a trailer truck through Baghdad. He goes with two other young uh, uh, Iraqi jihadis. And about 1,000 feet from a concrete barrier, the Iraqi jihadis jump out of the truck. He drives it ahead for less than 20 seconds. It's remotely detonated. It contains 26 tons of uh, liquid explosives. Uh, eight People are killed instantaneously, scores injured, including this young man, Ahmad, thrown from the truck. His body is covered with burns. Um, he's literally burning to death, but miraculously somehow survives this. He's taken to a local hospital, mistaken for a victim of the attacks and not who he really is uh, in this whole enterprise. Um, he confesses his role to the Iraqis. He's brutally tortured. He's brought to Abu Ghraib. Now, if you remember, that's the place with the horrible torture that the Americans committed with the photos that we all know about and which, in part, motivated him in the first place to join up with the cause. So he's absolutely petrified when he gets to Abu Ghraib. But what happens to him is entirely unexpected. He's given 30 operations by the U.S. Army uh, doctors and nurses um, at the facility at Abu Ghraib. And most of all, he meets a, a young army medic. It's the first woman he's ever met outside his own family. And she gives him caring and concern and nurses him back to health. And he's really transformed by the whole process. As he tells me, the Muslims who I went to fight for, my brothers, treated me like a piece of rotten meat. The Americans who I went to fight against treated me with kindness and respect. He's really uh, quite a pro-American guy now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are our biggest misconceptions about terrorists and jihadists? What do you think Americans think of them that, that is just, you know, false? Well, I, I think this story illustrates one thing we think of, and we think of them as single-minded fanatics who are, are, are hate us and are out to kill us and that's, that's, that's far from the truth for many of them. Um, there are some who are like that who are portrayed in the book. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't any who are burning with hatred. But, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of complex factors. There's another story in the book about 
a young couple, uh, uh, I think you alluded to it earlier, and uh, almost a jihadi Romeo and Juliet who fall madly in love with each other as teenagers. The young man can't marry the young woman because he doesn't have the $20,000 dowry or bride price, which is required for marriage. So he goes to Iraq, to holy war, to die for God, because if he dies on the battlefield for God, then he goes to heaven. And in heaven, he's allowed to marry whomever he wants. No bride price required in that situation. So that's why he does it. It has nothing to do with the United States. Right, right. Or American policy or anything like that. That's a, a window into another theme of the book, which is the important role that dreams play, the important role that these stories play, that, you know, I think a lot of Americans who are religious have, you know, the Bible is some sort of framework of stories, but for these men, the, you know, this is reality. It's, it's very literal that, you know, if you die, he literally will be married in heaven to this, to this woman. They take their stories as more than stories, as more than literal events. Right. This is a matter of faith, and heaven is a real place. It's a literal place. And um, uh, he, he literally wanted, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Someone interpreted the story in a different way. And that's something your readers sh- and listeners should remember if they read the book. This is almost primary source material. You can read it and come away with different conclusions, uh, not necessarily mine. Uh, somebody came away with the conclusion of, of, of this chapter that the young man was suicidal, and this was a culturally acceptable form of suicide anyway, so that he wanted to kill himself because he was in grief over separating from his um, beloved. And you certainly can interpret it that way. I mean, he would say he did it as a matter of religious conviction. Um, but that illustrates the, the complexity and, and what makes these stories so fascinating. Exactly. Because you remove them from the, the cartoon... Uh, uh, character cutouts that we like to see them as. Uh, and as you were saying earlier, I mean, dreams play a very important role, and there's a story in the book about a young man, Malik, who acted as the seer, or kind of, he was like a Rasputin for Mua Omar, who's the uh, uh, leader of the Taliban, and he'd interpret, he'd convey his own dreams to Mua Omar and interpret Mua Omar's dreams, and uh, this is um, how this man who we now spent 10 years fighting against in Afghanistan operates. Right. My guest this morning is Ken Ballin. The book is Terrorists in Love. And um, you, I know you um, have been asked this numerous times, and you address it a little bit in the introduction, but the, the thing that struck me is not only these men opening up to you, but the degree to which they opened up to you when it was, A, against their own, not only their own self-interest in telling stories that weren't, you know, necessarily flattering to themselves, but physically putting themselves in in real danger with the release of this book. Um, talk a little bit about the psychology of, share, of them sharing their stories with you and, and what their motive and gain was in, in, in telling their stories. Well, again, each one is slightly differently, uh, different. One man, Zeddy, who spent, uh, as he called it, a, uh, he, he was a career terrorist for Islam. Those are his words, not mine. Was so he was an older man when he came to me, and he had spent 49 years old. He had spent most of his life doing this, and he was so full of guilt that when we sat down to begin the discussion, it just was. I, I felt like I was in confessional. I mean, he just everything just poured out because he had never told anyone his life story before, and it had so, and he was it held it in, and he had so much guilt over it that it just came pouring out. That that was kind of atypical. Um, uh, uh, sometimes 
you know, to the to the young Saudi men we talked about. Uh, uh, you know, they were. Uh, I had a lot of help in getting out their stories. Uh, other people, um, uh, uh, you know, are, are very religiously motivated and. Like Malik, the young man I was talk, talking to you about who was a seer to Mullah Omar, uh, he, he, he's so fanatic that he left the Taliban proper because they weren't uh, pure enough for him. I mean, they were engaged in what he thought was corrupt activities, um, and he joined an even more radical cell. And he wanted to con- I was the first American he had met. I was the first Jew he had met, which is true for almost all these guys. And they really want to convert you. Um, they believe they're doing something right, and they want you to see the light of Islam. So they, uh, that's one of the motivations for them to talk to you um, as they keep talking. And I think there's some residual guilt or trying to justify what they've done. Right, right. Um, my guest this morning is Ken Ballon. The book is Terrorists in Love. It feels difficult not to be affected by the company you keep. And as you pointed out in the introduction, the, the key to successful interrogation or successful... I guess interrogation is, isn't torture, it's empathy and forcing yourself, however difficult, into these, into these shoes. Um, how did they change you, these people? Are, are there techniques you use as an interviewer to keep yourself empathetic yet at a healthy emotional distance from them? Or did you find yourself getting sucked in and changed by, by what they were telling you? A, a little of both. Um, I remember uh, at the end of uh, Malik, he reached out to hold my hand in friendship, which among the Pashtun is, is, a, is a way to show you're a friend with another man, is to hold their hand. So you reach out to hold my hand, and, and this is an absolutely extraordinary act among for someone like this. Mullah Omar, for instance, won't even look, let alone touch an infidel, and when the Chinese delegation, when he was in power running Afghanistan, a Chinese delegation came to visit him, he wouldn't look at them, he wouldn't shake their hands, they left him a Buddha, and as soon as the, the Chinese delegation left the room, they, he had the Buddha destroyed. Um, so this is this is the way of thinking. And so this young man reaches out and holds my hand. It's an extraordinary thing. And then he, you know, and I think this is a moment of transformation. And there's another story in the in the book which did change me, which we can discuss if we have the time. But he reaches out and holds my hand and proceeds to tell me that the Prophet Muhammad said that the day of judgment will not come until every Jew is killed. And if the Jew is hiding behind a rock, the rock itself will cry out to, oh, Muslims, kill the Jew that is hiding behind me. If the tree is, if the Jew is hiding behind a tree, the tree will cry out, oh, Muslims, um, uh, kill the Jew that is hiding behind me. Only the Garkar tree, which is the tree of the Jew, will not cry out. So, um, you know, that's one way I managed to have empathy but not sympathize. Right. I know the book hasn't been out for a tremendous amount of time, but it, it, has there been sort of an aftermath to these stories, what's happened to the book's release? I know some of these people were afraid for, uh, for their own lives and in telling you their stories. I know, you know, other people had sort of unresolved issues. Um, has anything happened since the book has come out that, that has shed light on any of the stories further? Well, I, I, I think one, one thing that did happen was the um, killing of bin Laden because uh, the man Zeddy, had told me um, in 2008 where he believed bin Laden was and where he was being harbored by the uh, Pakistani ISI. And uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, it's kind of like he said Orange County and, you know, bin Laden was uh, in, in a particular part of it, which he got it pretty close. So yeah. that did happen, which confirmed um, some of the chilling aspects of what he told me. Right, right. 
is there any concern for your own safety in the project or in other projects and and sort of how do you live with that over your over your head well i i you know as you mentioned i'm a former federal prosecutor you know i'm prosecuted uh you know uh, cocaine dealers and organized crime and this this is, goes with the territory i felt i took precautions i mean uh, Zeddy says, uh, you know, to me now, you know, don't go taking a vacation in our, our, our summer vacation in our beautiful mountains. Uh, that would not be a good idea. He's probably right about that. Right, right. Did this? Did the book unfold as you? I don't know if you did a book proposal for a publisher and already had the six stories when you did that, and then wrote it, or if you had a completed manuscript when you turned this into publishers, um, and how the book sort of, if if you had a proposal up front, how the book changed. From that. I, I did not have a proposal up front. I mean, I, I wrote the book because I had to write the book, and I had to convey and share these stories. And and there was one story, just if we have a moment, you asked me how it changed me. Uh, there was a young man, Shahid. He was part of it. His story is fascinating. I won't go into all the details um, of his upbringing, and, and he came from a very secular environment and background. But he was part of a Taliban cell, very radical, that later bombed the Marriott Hotel. And he and I were together and spent a long time together. And I conveyed to him a dream that I had. And he interpreted rather naively at that point in the process. I would never have done this again because he interpreted that dream in a very particular way. And if I had given, I'll I'll just say it because it's easier to describe it. Um, He had said, that because I, he thought I had a vision of the Prophet Muhammad, and because I did not see the face of the Prophet in the dream, just kind of this blurry image that he interpreted as the Prophet, um, that meant it was a true dream from God, because as a non-believer, I couldn't see the face. If I had said I'd seen the face in the dream, this man's face in the dream, that would have been a dream from the devil, and God knows what would have happened to me, uh, frankly. But anyway, I... I uh, saw this, and he on the spot, this is a man who knew the Quran by heart, began reciting to me verses from the Quran that call for love and tolerance um, and acceptance of Jews and Christians and even of non-believers in his vision of humanity. Um, And it was quite moving because he ended up renouncing violence. He became a very, still a very fundamentalist. He joined a very fundamentalist and very strictly, um, strict. Islamic sect, but no longer wanted to be part of the violence of the Taliban, in part because he actually saw me as an American and Jew having this dream that he had longed to have um, as a human, as a fellow human being for the first time. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing <laughs> to see someone renounce their beliefs before <laughs> your eyes and then do so from these, uh, you know, very intricate and kind of weird if i could use that word dream right right it does it does highlight the difference between american mentality western mentality and you know <laughs> you don't even know the gulf that you have to traverse to understand uh, understand well, that's the other exactly side. you don't even know the gulf and it, it was really kind of naive for me to stumble into this and i you know once i realized what happened i was I, you know that was it was a moment of fear and revelation at the same time and and um you know somebody asked me well you know, uh, uh, do you now uh, uh, feel differently about dreams? Uh, no, not really. I just won't share them with people so readily, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Indeed, indeed. Uh, unfortunately, we are we are out of time, but I really appreciate your time this morning. That's, that's, I thank you so much, and we, we do have a website, yeah, com where people can read more about the book. Absolutely, absolutely. Highly recommended read. Ken Ballin, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Ken Ballin, the book, again, Terrorists in Love, True Life Story of Islamic Radicals. It's published by Free Press. It is out now, and, uh, and as Ken said, you should visit his website to find out more about, uh, about Ken and about the book. Uh, fascinating read. We're going to take a short break, but please stay with me. Tim Harford will be here for the second half hour. You're listening to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We will be right back. in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. This show will join the other interviews up on the web and available to you via podcast. Feel free to visit us at iTunes. We're under College Radio. Or you can always visit Barbara's website, penonfire.com, for direct downloads, as well as information on past shows, upcoming shows, our salon events, and more. 
Uh, speaking of salon events, we have another great one coming up on July 17th. Uh, I announced this last week. If you haven't checked us out yet, Jess Walter, who was on the show a little while back, is joining us. Um, he's the author of The Financial Lives of Poets, among other things. Um, these events do sell out fast. I haven't actually checked with Barbara to see if there are seats left. But if you're interested, I encourage you to check us out at penonfire.com. There's information about that. Again, that's Tuesday, July 17th, 7 o'clock at the Scape Gallery in Corona Del Mar. I'm your host, Marie Stone, and I'm joined now by Tim Hartford. Tim is, is uh, the writer of The Undercover Economist. He's a senior columnist for the Financial Times. His writing has also appeared in Esquire, Forbes, New York Magazine, Wire, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. His previous books include The Million Selling, The Undercover Economist, and The Logic of Life. Tim presents the popular BBC radio show, More or Less, and is a visiting fellow at Matfield College in Oxford. He's the winner of the 2006 Bastia Prize for Economic Journalism in 2010 and 2011, won awards for the Royal Statistical Society for Journalistic Excellence. The book is Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. It's out in paperback by Picador, and it's the subject, among other things, of our talk this morning. Tim, hello. Hello, Marie. How are you? Thank you for joining me all the way, all the way from England. I really appreciate this. Um, well, well, it's a pleasure. Normally, I'd wish you a happy Fourth of July, but that's probably it's <laughs> probably not appropriate. <laughs> you guys enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't worry about us. <laughs> it's a quiet day over here. In fact, it's raining outside, so it's not it's not so Fourth of Julyish, but uh, it's a little more a uh, little more British than Californian over here. Um, so. Let's talk about the um, the theory of the book. For those unfamiliar with ADAPT, take us sort of into the, the thesis of the book for us. So ADAPT was originally supposed to be a book about how, uh, how to save the world, really, how to deal with problems such as war and climate change and the banking crisis and innovation, all of this sort of thing. And um, appropriately, appropriately enough, given what the book turned into, um, it, via a trial and error process, it actually became a book about not how to solve these problems specifically, but how in general we go about solving complex problems like this. How do complex problems get solved, or how do they not get solved? And the argument of the book was, um, well, the world's such a complicated place, we only ever solve complex problem problems through uh, trial and error, through a process of experimentation. It could be very formal experimentation that you ask with the scientific method, or it could be much more informal, people giving it a go and trying things out and not being afraid to fail. And I suppose what was really interesting about the book for me was the discovery as I was writing it that what had originally been a, a kind of a policy wonkish book turned out not to be like that at all. Actually, it was full of stories of individual heroism, and it kept bumping up against this question of, well, if trial and error is how we solve problems, how come that's never the rhetoric? How come politicians never run on a platform of, well, I don't know, I'm going to try a bunch of things out? Why psychologically do we, uh, do we not like to admit that actually we're just fumbling our way through and experimenting our way through? So it's a book about experimentation, and it was written in an experimental way. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about your process of doing it. You, you started out with a thesis, and then you set out to find examples to prove the thesis, but the examples turned into something else, or sort of, sort of take me through your own trial and error process in the writing of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book took about three or four years to write. Um, it took a long time, but, but it was, I mean, I loved it. I love writing books. It just, well, we can talk about that later. What, so what happened was I, I said, right, I'm going to write a book about saving the world. So I started reading all the literature I could find on um, policies to deal with climate change. Because I'm an economist, so I was reading sort of economic policies aimed at dealing with climate change. And I started finding, well, what other problems are there out there? Well, uh, there's terrorism. Well, again, I'm an economist. There is an economic literature on terrorism. So I started reading that. And I started looking at other things. And, we, and I gradually came to the realization as I was... Um, see, really, as I was reading some very good journalistic accounts of what was happening in Iraq, my wife had said, well, if you're going to solve problems, you need to sort things out in Iraq. And, and I was reading about the surge and about um, how the U.S. Army had, I think, turned this really terribly disastrous situation into, into something at least somewhat better. And I realized, gosh, it's really, it's really a decentralized process of experimentation it was actually it wasn't the senior figures in the u.s army it was um it was the, the more junior officers it was the majors and the colonels and then i realized well i was i was reading this stuff about um corporate experimentation and, and, and again uh, decentralization um experimentation very important and i used to work for the world bank and and i have particular views on the mistakes the world bank used to make and again i thought the really interesting stuff going on in development was about experimentation. And so gradually, although I, I had originally planned to write these self-contained silos about, you know, everything you need to know about making Africa rich, uh, actually I started seeing these common threads. And the, and the stuff that didn't really fit into that idea of trial and error, the more, the more nerdy, the more policy wonkish stuff, um, just, I just thought, actually, this is not that interesting either. I'd rather write a book about trial and error. It's a more human subject. It's a more interesting subject. I guess one of the, the quieter sub-themes seems to be that success comes from some unlikely places. You know, you talk about this TV chef in the UK who uncovered the fact that healthier lunches would lead to greater academic success among students. There are some other examples, but it seems like that the people who the pressure is not on, you know, the higher-ups in organizations or the, the people, you know, Donald Rumsfeld in the Iraq War, the people who aren't, aren't account aren't accountable are the ones who solve the problems. The people on the front line or on the factory floors are the ones who are actually solving the problems and not the higher-ups. And I'm wondering if that's a, a manifestation of not having all the pressure on you to, to account to somebody. Well, I, I, I don't think that's the reason. I think you're right. Success does come from, from unlikely places. But actually, the people who I describe coming up with these ideas were often under tremendous pressure. Um, I mean, H.R. McMaster, who's really the hero of the Iraq story, he was repeatedly passed over for promotion. He, when I first interviewed him, he was recovering from hip surgery because he'd been hit by a roadside bomb. His men were getting killed. Um, he was personally warned off by General Casey, who was in charge in Iraq at the time, and told he was making enemies. I mean, I don't think it's fair to say that there was, there was no pressure on him. <laughs> right. um, or, or, or Mario Capecchi, who's a, a Nobel Prize winner uh, for medicine, um, developed the sort of pioneering te techniques of gene therapy. And he, 
His first memory was of his mother being arrested uh, by the Gestapo when she was taken away to a concentration camp. And he withstood, I mean, he later ended up at Harvard, and other oh, an amazing story he had. But he later withstood tremendous pressure from uh, grant-making authorities um, to, to get into, to be less adventurous, to be more conservative in, in what he was doing. Um, so I don't think it's about... I don't think it's about pressure, um, but I think there is something there which is about the space to experiment. And Capecchi, in particular, left Harvard um, and went to Utah because he said he felt that everybody was trying to impress everybody else too quickly at Harvard. And if he went off to Utah, well, he might have to withstand all this pressure from the funding bodies, but he could at least work at his own pace. Um, and that comes up quite a lot in the chapter on innovation. There are people who are under a lot of um, funding pressure, who are, uh, who are taking a lot of flack, but who have nevertheless managed to carve out a space where they can, they can do the kind of important work that they really want to do. Right. And, and amazing things do come out of that. Of course, crazy ideas come out of that. They don't work all the time. I mean, the point is not find one genius and give him or her space. The point is, well, so you need a lot of people, and a lot of them actually will just produce nothing of any value, but the single innovations that work will, will be worth all of the failures. Yeah. 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 This culture of fear around failure and how to overcome it, I think, is such an interesting one. You talked about recapturing the culture of college. You know, college is such a safe place to experiment and to fail and to try different things. And and I'm wondering if it's maybe the language that we use that the word, you know, we shouldn't be using the word failure um, because it, it comes with such baggage. But, you know, the trial and error sounds a little bit more benign. Innovation certainly sounds much more benign. Um, and, yeah. and maybe we're getting in our own way with the language we're using to describe it. I, I think I think you're you're right. And actually, I was at a very encouraging meeting um, uh, organised by the British Cabinet Office, uh, the Prime Minister's uh, you know personal policy group, a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about using policy trials and experiments, like you would try out a new drug, but to try out new ways of getting people to pay fines or getting people getting people to pay their taxes and um, we were discussing um, failed experiments and then somebody stood up somebody I respect a lot Ben Goldacre who's written a great book himself and said you're, you're using the wrong word these are not failed experiments these are failed policy ideas and the experiments successfully showed that the mm. policy idea shouldn't be continued so the experiment is a success even if it clearly demonstrates that you should stop what you're doing because it's not working. And I thought that was a really, that was a really useful clarification. And, and it's not just in you know, very um, sort of policy-intensive circles. I try and use this now in my personal life. I mean, writing this book actually did change the way I thought about my personal life. So I will now um, routinely um, try out new things, maybe try out a new sport or a new activity or seek out um, a social setting that I wouldn't be comfortable with because, like many writers, I'm a little shy. Um, and I'll force myself to do that. And I would expect that I probably won't enjoy it because, you know, I'm nearly 40 and I've tried a lot of things out. So I, I would <laughs> hope I've found most of the stuff I actually like to do. But, you know, it's worth trying some new things out. And I, I try and use different language now. If I do one of these things and I, I don't have a great evening, I'll come away and say, well, that was worth a try. That was a successful experiment. I, 
I proved that in fact I do not want to uh, become a painter or I do not want to bake my own bread. Um, but it was interesting to find out that that's actually something I don't want to do. It's actually such a useful exercise for writers themselves who are so terrified of failure that it's hard to put pen to, to pen to paper for fear of writing a, an atrocious sentence or coming up with some atrocious idea. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about this on the on the show about free writing and, and sort of, you know, unhin- unhinging the bonds and shackles that, you know, hold you back from, from these. But I'm wondering if this changes your perspective as, as a writer also. Well, I I have to admit, I think that like like any writer who's managed to get anything published, I've had to learn this lesson myself <laughs> a long time ago. Right. So I, I quote um, Hemingway in the book uh, where he 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 had this comment: the first draft of t- the first draft of anything is well, I won't finish that quote because <laughs> it's early in the morning in California. Um, um, the first draft of anything is not very good, shall we paraphrase. <laughs> but he also said, write drunk, edit sober, yeah. which I think is really interesting. The idea, not that I'm suggesting that you should always write drunk, but the idea that maybe it's okay to be a little bit free associating while you're writing and to make a few mistakes and you know to write some stuff that isn't very good and, and then come back to it later when you've got a clear mind and fix it. Um, but if, you've con- if you're constantly in the mode of, get it right, get it right, get it right, get it right, then it's very easy to never get started at all. Indeed. One of the things I found as, as a writer um, came over time was when I first started writing my first book, The Undercover Economist, which, which in the end, amazingly, was, was a great success to my, to my enormous surprise. I wrote, I, I don't know, 100 words a week, 200 words a week. I wrote so <laughs> slowly because I felt that everything had to be right, and every sentence I wrote, I would go back and try and fix it, and try to, and of course, it was all terrible, it was all terrible, um, because I was just starting, I didn't know what I was doing, and later, when I'd got more rhythm, I might easily write a thousand words in the morning, mm-hmm. sometimes, if it was a really good day, I might write two or three thousand, and then the next day, you pick it up, and you go, oh, you know what, Tim, you kind of got a bit carried away, there was, uh, I thought really very good, and you might you might cut a thousand words and just get on with it. And you wouldn't worry about that because you wrote 3,000 words yesterday. Why not cut a thousand words? It's no big deal. Whereas if you're writing a few hundred words a week, to cut a thousand words means that's a month's (laughs) work. You can't do it. And so actually it's completely self-defeating. So I find trying to write quickly and then clear up all the mess is a much more effective way of, of, I think, writing something that's good in the end. Indeed, indeed. My guest this morning is Tim Hartford. The book is Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. You, um, you know, there are so many examples in the marketplace today of, of innovative companies, you know, Whole Foods or Apple um, that separate them from, you know, IBM and traditional supermarket chains. I'm wondering if you kind of can look into your, <laughs> your magic ball and see where this is going for our writerly audience about the field of journalism, newspapers, print media and publishing are there where are the real innovators in in that industry oh gosh well that's a, that's a very interesting question and, and and marie you know that in the first chapter of the book i do say that you should never trust any economic forecast because <laughs> they're always proved wrong incredibly quickly i mean i think it's, it's very interesting that um 
in the time I've been a writer, which is not that long, it's less than a decade, we've moved from uh, basically the internet is going to create all these websites that are going to be worth billions and therefore and content is king and you know just stick a dot com on the end of it and and then we move to this idea that uh, the internet is killing. Um, uh, journalism, and then it's like, no, the blogs, the citizen journalism and blogs. You remember when blogs were the new thing? <laughs> wasn't very long ago. It really wasn't very long ago. And then it wasn't blogs, it was Twitter. Um, and, oh, no, it's not Twitter, it's the iPad, it's the tablet. And it, every time, the latest thing somebody told me about last week was a website that um, will scrape, and this is probably old news to you, um, will scrape uh, a newspaper, a newspaper website, so we'll just take the text of a newspaper website and format it and then deliver it to your Kindle or to your tablet. Oh, no. Um, so you, so, so you, don't need, you don't need to get the Kindle subscription or you don't need to get the app. It seems that um, the, tools, the tools for extracting the content you want for free always seem to be one step ahead yeah. of the people who are trying to figure out how to, how to make people pay for content. Um, so I mean, in the short term... I have to say I'm, sl I'm slightly pessimistic um, about people who want to get paid to write. I'm hugely optimistic about people who just want to write and find a voice and find an audience. Never been better for that. Mm. But to actually get paid um, serious money, um, in the short term, I think the prognosis is not that good. But who's to say in three or four years where things might go? Um, I mean, there are, there are some reasons to believe that perhaps um, writers in the end will come out on top. Um, and a, a, a strange parallel is, um, and I realize, and I apologize, I realize this is not the favorite sport in California, but um, is soccer. Yep. Look at soccer. It used to be that all the money flowed to the television stations. And why? Well, because television stations had the scarce resource, which was broadcast time. They would broadcast a few matches. They'd pay a bit of money to the football teams, and that, and that was it. And then when you got more and more television stations, you got satellite TV and cable. Suddenly there, there was a limitless amount of TV space to fill, and the scarce resource was talented footballers to put on the TV. Uh, and that's when um, huge amounts of money started flowing to footballers, to soccer players. Really huge because in the end, there's only one Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi there's only one of you know, just yeah. You know, there just aren't that many of these brilliant people, mm. um, and so that power, if you're still with me, um, is suggests that maybe newspapers are in trouble, maybe traditional publishers are in trouble, but maybe just maybe the authors will come out doing very well, the writers will come out doing very well, um, but who knows? I mean, I've always I've always said to to anybody who who wants to be a writer, go for it, but don't expect to get rich. And when I finished writing my first book, Undercover Economist, I didn't have a publisher, I didn't have an advance, nothing. I had no reason to believe anybody would ever publish it. And I remember you know, dotting that last, you know, the, putting the period at the end of the last sentence and going downstairs to my wife and saying, well, I finished it, and uh, I don't know if it'll ever be published, but it was worth it anyway, hmm. because it was such fun to spend a couple of years writing it. I was proud of myself. And in the end, I think that's got to be the motivation for any writer, um, first and foremost. If you want to make money, then, you know, be an accountant. Yeah, right, right. Well, I love your analogy. 
that's the most hopeful, lovely thing I've heard in a very long time when I've asked that Fingers question. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. It's absolutely, uh, yeah. No, it, it, and, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I think, uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom behind what you say. So, uh, moving to the, the um, editing side of this, there's, uh, there's a story that you point out in your own writing of the book um, that we circulate our ideas to, or our book, to a kind of a benevolent audience, um, one that will tell us what we want to hear, or perhaps, you know, don't really want to tear our work apart. And so you, you very um, sweetly shared a piece of research that, that probably should have made it into the book that didn't. Um, so I'm wondering if um, sort of how you share your work, who your, your trusted people are, who your trusted readers are, and whether you really throw it to a pack of wolves or if you give it to a, you know, sort of a sweeter, kinder, gentler editor and how that, how that process goes. Sure. So originally I used to just send it to people who I hoped would tell me it was okay. That was my early, uh, I, the, the, when I was on 200 words a week, I'd send those 200 words to a friend who was an author and say, oh, what do you think? And he'd write back with exactly what he should write back, which is, it's great, keep going. Because what else are you going to say? Right. <laughs> 200 words. <laughs> it's great, just keep going. Um, you know, he can tell me they're rubbish later. There'll be plenty of time for that. When I've written another you know, 80,000 words, then, then might be the time for some editing. These days, I, I hope I'm a bit more grown up about it. I have a very old friend who is a great editor, and I pay him um, to, to, to basically be with me for the whole writing process. And he, he's very tough with me. Uh, he's very smart, so he can think about the ideas in the book and tear them apart and say they don't make any logical sense. But he's also a great writer, and he's got a great ear, um, so he gives me good advice. Sometimes I ignore it. Um, sometimes I think he's too keen. He's too keen on signposts. He's too keen on, oh, now tell them where they're going next. And I'm, no, I want it to be a surprise. I want them to keep reading, not because I've told them what's going to happen, but <laughs> because they're excited and they want to find out how the story ends. So we don't agree about everything. But he's the main port of call. Um, I will then, when, when the thing's in reasonable shape, um, I will then send it out to people, a, a wide variety of people, maybe 10, 15, uh -huh. in the hope of getting some comments. And some of them will be subject specialists who will come back and say, no, you got that date wrong or your, your analysis of that idea is not quite right. And some of them will be general readers who will say, I don't understand. What are you talking about? And, uh, and you know, that's, that's a very important process to, to gather all those things all those people together, but I leave it until I have a good first draft before I do that, because I feel otherwise you, there's a risk of, I think until, until you're reasonably far in the process, you yourself, plus the, the, with the aid of maybe one good editor, you can spot a lot of the problems. You don't want to exhaust your readers by showing them every sort of pre-draft and sub-draft. Um, you want to show them something that might actually want to read. Right. Uh, and I actually take advantage of, of print-on-demand services. So for Adapt, I printed my first draft and I made it look like a book. Mm. And I had a cover page and it, you know, it was a physical thing and I could sign a copy and say, look, here's one, you know, there were limited edition, there were 20 of them, mm. and give it to people in the hope that they might get excited and actually read it and actually come back to you. And I have to say, even then, Half the people you give it to are never going to give you any comments, whether they read it or not, I don't know. 
Right, right. Um, but they're, but they're not going to. So and you can't you can't sort of. You're not. You, you're asking a lot of people. You can't expect everybody to do that for you. I like that. So that's uh, why I, I hand out hand out quite a few copies. Yeah, no, I like that. I, I hadn't heard that concept before of using print on demand as a sort of, you know, teaser to the book or, or a way to distribute it where it looks like an actual copy of a book and, and get comments that way. I think that's that's very clever. I like that. Yeah. I mean, of course, once it's a bit better advanced, one can also get endorsements from people who you might actually want to say the book is good. Um, so, you know, there's it, it's a nice way to get people involved early on. So um, that's what I try and do. Right, right. We're drawing down on our time, unfortunately. Are you uh, are you hard at work on on the next one? Do you are are you always thinking ahead to the next project as you're as you're finishing up one project? Is your mind in the next one, or do you give yourself some downtime? Uh, I, I don't get much downtime because I'm, I write a, write a script for a radio show, and I have two columns a week. Um, but the books are the things that most excite me. So I am working at the moment on a sequel to The Undercover Economist, a book about macroeconomic issues and stimulus and austerity and the issues we're facing today. And I also uh, am vaguely thinking about a new big idea book like Adapt. Um, but that's, that, that one I think is probably going to simmer for a few years before it comes out. So we'll, we'll see. Fantastic. Fantastic. Tim, I so appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thanks again. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. That was Tim Hartford. The book is Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. You, uh, you can check, um, check him out, out online. And uh, like I said, it's out in paperback by Picador. And uh, fantastic, fascinating read. That is all the time we have for today. I'll be right back here with you next Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. Stay tuned for Positive Vibrations coming up next on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for joining me. Hey.
walk away from me. 